Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. I didn't think it would. Last week we looked at the passage that told us all about the martyrdom of Stephen and we also looked at the first couple of verses of chapter 8 and there we saw a new character introduced to us, a name that hadn't been on the scene before, someone who was there in Jerusalem who saw the death of Stephen and in fact gave approval for it and that is Saul. And uh, then we read about how, as a result of the death of Stephen, a great persecution began to break out against the church. And as a result of that, many of the believers were scattered. Now, it would be easy to anticipate that such a relatively small, fragile movement, which had only been in existence a matter of months, might have got broken by what was happening. But actually, as we read on, we find it's only the start of phase two. You can almost imagine God looking down from heaven and using the words of Edmund Blackadder. Baldrick, I have a plan, and it is so cunning you could brush your teeth with it. So now we pick up where we left off at the beginning of chapter 8. It says, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death, at Stephen's. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. 
Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to God. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on the way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, who is this prophet speaking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. 
when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So far, as we've gone through Luke's account of the early church, we've been seeing how careful he is to record certain things. How careful he has been to record the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And often he's done that by telling us about the numerical impact events have had upon the church. In Acts 2.41 it said, and about 3,000 were added to their number on that day. In Acts 2.47 it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In Acts 4 verse 4 it says, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. And in Acts 6.7 it said, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Even in this passage, when we look at it, in verse 6 of chapter 8, it says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. If we rewind history a little, if we go back to the very first chapter of Acts 1, during the time when Christ was back on earth, before his final ascension, he gave a commission to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts 1 verse 8. Guess what? Phase two has started. But in the middle of this, Luke suddenly takes his attention off of the numbers and he focuses on one man. This Ethiopian. Why? Why does he stop looking at the numbers? He goes back and he says that Philip preached all the way to Caesarea. But for a moment he takes his attention away from the crowd and looks at this one Ethiopian. I think it's because here he is stopping us getting over-obsessed with the massive amount of growth that was going on. He reminds us that God deals with each and every person individually. Everyone is precious to God. Now Philip, last week when we looked at Stephen, we saw that Stephen was one of those elected in Acts 6 to wait on the tables, following that dispute between the Greek and Hebraic-speaking believers. Well, Philip was another one of them. So we know some stuff about him as well, because just like when we looked at Stephen, we could read bits about him in that passage, we know the same is true of Philip. To have been elected, he had to be a man for the faith and the Holy Spirit. 
And at the beginning of this passage, we find him in Samaria. Probably as a result of the persecution that we read about in verse 1, which followed Stephen's death. But it obviously hasn't put him off. He is obviously as bold and full of the Spirit as he has ever been. Because we read that rather than hiding away, he is still preaching Christ and he is still gathering crowds. Now I don't know about you, how good is your geography of the Middle East? Good? A few people putting their thumbs down. Eve's rapidly turning to some maps. Well, I'm going to save you that. Because I want us, from here on in, in Acts, we're going to find place name after place name. And so, what I'm going to do is lead us through some of that. So I've prepared some maps. Can you put the first one up, Philippa? Okay. Sorry, it's not showing up so well in the sun. But there's a map of southern Europe and the Middle East. Okay? Now... If it were on the map, the Isle of Wight would be about there. Okay? We're somewhere just off the top of the map here. Okay? There's France, Italy, Greece, Turkey. And this is Israel. Okay? There's Syria, Jordan. This is Iran and Iraq. Uh, and this is Egypt. Okay, that's for Lebanon, just in there. Okay, if you move on to the next map. Okay, so this, this is Egypt, sorry, Israel. Okay, in modern day terms, there's a few disputed territories. Okay, the Golan Heights that you sometimes hear about in the news are up here. The Gaza Strip is down there. Okay? And you've got this artificial divide at the moment that came about in the partitioning in the late 1940s, okay, which split when the nation of Israel was recreated. And there is a red line that shows it that goes round about like that. And that's the division between Israel and Palestine at the moment. But there's a lot of confrontation over so, Jerusalem is there. Okay? And that's where all the action has been up to now. Nearly everything we've read about in Acts has happened in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where they were meeting day by day in Acts 1. But now it says the persecution has pushed those believers wider. It's pushed them out of Jerusalem because that's the centre of where the persecution is. That's where the religious leaders are getting upset. And it's pushed them out into Judea. Now Judea is an area. It's not a town. It's an area. It's a bit like saying all the persecution has happened in Southampton. So people have gone into Hampshire. Yeah? I picked that one because that's where I grew up. So Judea is this region here. Okay? And it says they've got pushed out into Samaria. Samaria is another region. It's up here. 
And for historical reasons, the Jews didn't look very kindly upon the Samaritans. They thought they were second class. They were different. They lived out in the sticks. And that's why you get the story of the Good Samaritan, where it's someone who's almost a, a bit of an outcast, is the one that shows great love and generosity to someone that normally wouldn't even associate with him. So these believers had fled from Jerusalem into the surrounding area. Some of them had gone from Southampton to Hampshire, and some of them had travelled farther north and ended up in Yorkshire. That's what it amounts to. Now, we aren't told where in Samaria Philip was. But it was somewhere in that region. And then this angel comes to him and says, go south to the road. The desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Can you show the next stride? Now Gaza is down here. So Philip is somewhere up here in Samaria. And he's being told to go down there. Now that's quite a journey. We're not talking about, oh, go on out to Armthorpe. Okay. It's like being told, go to Southampton from where we are this morning. This angel says to him, go to the road. The desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, from the way the passage reads, it sounds like he just dropped everything and went. Now, we don't know what he had planned. We don't know why he was in Samaria. We don't know whether it was convenient or not. But on hearing from God, he went. And somewhere along this journey, he meets this Ethiopian. Now, just so you can understand the geography a bit more, at the end of the passage... Philip gets transported in the spirit. He just disappears. The Holy Spirit just lifts him up. And he's gone. And he's next seen in this place, Acetus. Cover next slide. Okay, there's Gaza. There's Azotus. Okay, and it says, he then went on preaching all the way to Caesarea. Here's Caesarea. As you can see, it's not next door. He had quite a trip. But getting back to the Ethiopian, here we have what today we'd often refer to as a divine appointment. A situation or a circumstance that God has planned for us to use. And it's interesting to just consider a few points here. God chose Philip. We know he was a Greek-speaking Jewish believer. And I think because of that, because he was a Greek speaker, he would have had a wider outlook on the world. And he would have probably been happier speaking to a foreigner than actually one of the Hebraic believers. Because their, their whole worldview was much narrower than the Greek speakers. Because of that, he would have probably been more open 
to the idea that God's family was actually open to non-Jews. Because this, for the whole Jewish nation, was a revelation. For those who were believing, and as we look through Acts, there comes a time when suddenly, as if scales fall from their eyes, they realise that Gentiles can be saved. So Philip was a Greek speaker, more open to speaking to a foreigner, and probably more open to the whole idea that non-Jews could become believers. God put Philip, the right man, on the right road, at just the right time to bump into this Ethiopian, who was an important dignitary. So now, thinking about the Ethiopian... God was already at work in his life. It must have been, because he'd been to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. But the interesting thing is, it says he's a eunuch. And as such, he wouldn't have been allowed into the main assembly in the temple. He'd have been restricted to one of the outer courts. Now we know that because it says in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. It was against the law. He wouldn't have been allowed right into the heart of the temple. Yet he was an educated and a thoughtful man. He was reading Isaiah. It wouldn't have been in his native tongue. And for someone who was not from a Jewish upbringing, it would have been quite a challenge to read. The symbolism, the prophetic style would have been confusing. More so than it even is for us today. Because when we read it, we tend to read it in our own language. And we at least have seen Jesus to whom it points. And that helps us understand some of it. But he hadn't met Jesus and couldn't see that. So the Spirit tells Philip, go up to the chariot and stay near it. So being obedient again, Philip jogs over to the chariot. And he obviously eavesdrops because he hears him reading from Isaiah 53 verse 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And then he asks a question. It's a simple question. But what a question! Do you understand that? What a question. Now, I do, in my work, quite a lot of interviews. I do tape-recorded interviews, just like on the bill, under caution. And I can tell you one thing for certain. Nothing opens up a conversation like asking the right question at just the right time. And it's usually the question people aren't expecting. How could he understand that passage? He wasn't a Jew and he hadn't yet been introduced to Jesus. 
Do you understand what you're reading? Naturally, he says, no. He needed that introduction to Jesus. And I've got no doubt over what Philip said to him. He'd have explained to him it was Jesus who went without protest to his own death, just like a lamb to the slaughter. It was Jesus' life that was taken in a humiliating and unjust way. I think Philip would have probably turned the scroll back a verse or two. Because only a few verses before, in Isaiah 53, 4-6, he could have read to him, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then he could have explained it was for our human sin that he died. It was through his death that we, the sinful, can find peace and healing. He could explain to him that although we're all disqualified from God by our sin, and this eunuch by his disfigurement, that Christ died to open a way up for us to come back to God. His message would have been one of the death of the innocent for the undeserving. He may have turned forward a few verses, because after the passage the eunuch was reading, we find in verses 10 to 12, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And although the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his souls, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then as he talked about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, as he explained the gospel, he must have covered repentance and baptism as well. Why do I say that? Because we see the Ethiopians' response in verse 36. The moment they were travelling along the road and they saw a pond, he said, look, there's water. Why can't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot and Philip baptised him. 
And then we read that born again, forgiven, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Ethiopian went off rejoicing. And why shouldn't he? His life had been turned around. I believe Luke included this event to remind us that the expansion of the kingdom and the growth of the church is all down to God. He prepared the Ethiopian. He made sure he was reading the right passage. He found the right man to teach him. He made sure that he was in the right place at the right time. He gave the right message to the Ethiopian. And he prompted the response in the Ethiopian's heart. Now, it would be easy to look upon that and think it was an isolated incident. But it isn't. Our God has been carefully overseeing the birth and the growth of the early church. No one has been added without his knowledge and his intervention. It would be easy to think that his oversight ends there. But it doesn't. God is still in control. His gospel changes lives. It did then. And it still does today. In those days, it changed the lives of priests in Jerusalem, in Acts 6. It's changing the lives of the Samaritans that we've just read about in Acts 8. It's already changed the lives of the 3,000 after Pentecost and the 5,000 shortly after. And it still does today. Because we serve a God who is on a mission. It says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, This is good, and it pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God earnestly desires that all should be saved. That is God's heart for the lost. And as a church, we must never take our eyes off that simple truth. Because if we cease to be a church on God's mission, we will actually cease to be a church. We must never stop being active. You know, you sometimes hear people say, I don't, I don't have to witness a lot. I let my lifestyle do the talking. Scripture says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's in 1 Peter 3, 15. 
answer, to ask the questions. Looking at Philip, are you as sensitive to those around you as Philip was to that Ethiopian? Do you look for the opportunities that God gives you to open up conversations? Because look where one simple question that Philip asked took things. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you ask for and follow up on divine appointments? Do you see every meeting you have with people as an opportunity? Are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in you? Or are you content to let your lifestyle do the talking? What would you do if when you're shopping in Tesco or Asda or Sainsbury's next week, God gave you a word of knowledge about the woman leaning over the freezer next to you. Are you ready to take that risk? I've put some questions together that I think would be good for us to talk about in group on Tuesday. So I'm going to make David's life easy for him. But I'll tell you what they are now. Then you've got plenty of time to think of your excuses. Do we recognise divine appointments when they come along? Do we sit back and let our lives do the talking? How can we open up conversations that God may use to lead on to opportunities for evangelism? When we're asked about the hope that we have, do we have an answer? And if, like Philip, in the middle of our lives, God told us to go or to do, are we open to that? Will we drop everything like him and go. Now they're hard things to consider. I'm not suggesting for a moment that any of us will get 10 out of 10 on them all. But they're things we need to consider. What hinders us? What holds us back? What can we do about that to make sure we are as available as we can for God and the leading of his Holy Spirit? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.